Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Oxford Fantasy Literature Podcast. I'm Catherine Olley, a Junior Research Fellow in Medieval Studies here in Oxford, and today I'm going to be talking a little bit about the role played by faith in fantasy literature, and a warning here for spoilers for the following fantasy novels, James Islington's Lycanus trilogy and Tasha Suri's Realm of Ash. My interest in this topic was sparked by a passage I read in James Islington's The Light of All That Falls, the concluding novel in his Lycanus trilogy. The central conflict of his trilogy revolves around a group of near-immortals called the Venerate, most of whom believe that they have been recruited by El, the great benevolent creator deity of Islington's fantasy world, to save that world from the corresponding evil deity or demon, Shamaloth. They believe that El has been trapped inside his creation by the machinations of Shamaloth, who has set the world upon a predestined course from which only the Venerate can free it, thereby liberating El from the bounds of time in which he is encased and returning free will to the world. In pursuit of this goal, the Venerate have committed great acts of good as well as great acts of evil. But as their evil deeds begin to accumulate, some of them start to doubt that the entity that speaks to them and drives them on this mission is in fact the benevolent L, and begin to fear it is instead Shamaloth, deceiving them into thinking they are freeing L, whilst really encouraging them to widen a breach between worlds, which will allow the evil of the spirit world beyond, called the Darklands, to flood the earth with pain and suffering. And Islington takes a long time to confirm for the reader which of these two opposing views is the true one, leaving a sliver of doubt as to whether it is El or Shamaloth whom the Venerate have been serving until quite far through the trilogy. In the course of his adventures, one of the book's main protagonists, Davian, meets a man called Ryleth, who has been exiled by the Venerate for preaching against their belief in El. And Davian is somewhat taken aback by the strength of Ryleth's conviction that the Venerate are wrong about El, something that Davian himself, though he considers the Venerate his enemy, has not fully accepted or has not fully thought through for himself. And there follows a very interesting discussion between them, as Ryleth sets out his rationale for objecting to the aims of the Venerate and their desire to free El, as they see it, from the constraints of the world, and, so they think, restore free will. And he lays out his beliefs for Davian in the following words on pages 325 to 326. Quote, A world where all possibilities are promised is, by necessity, a world in which God cannot take part, cannot choose to affect the world in any way. If he exerts his will even a fraction, he is, by definition, changing how things could have been. He is removing possible outcomes. They, i.e. the venerate, are trying to convince everyone that our creator wished to create a world in which he could not take part, could not help, guide or save, in which he was functionally irrelevant. And he goes on again a few lines later. The L I believe in is not just the creator of this world, but inextricably tied to it. If he were to withdraw from it, it would cease to be as we know it. It would become a place where all the things we value, all things that have beauty and life and meaning, 
are simply not possible, end quote. Rylak's passionate defense of a God who would not, quote, abandon us to ourselves, page 327, but would rather intervene to help and guide, struck me as a rare occurrence in fantasy literature, in that it is a depiction, and I find it a convincing one, of faith. Very rarely in my reading of fantasy have I come across such a thing. And let me clarify at this point that when I say faith here, I mean an expression of a personal and profoundly held belief in contrast to simply the structures and dogma of an organised religious system. Though religion certainly does not have to be a feature of fantasy writing, and Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are good examples of books in which religion plays hardly any role. It has come to have a growing presence, and most fantasy works these days have some kind of imagined religious belief system or systems to flesh out their cultural world or multiple worlds. It's quite unusual, however, for these belief systems to have more than what I would call a fairly superficial impact on the character's motivations and actions. In a culture of scepticism and relativism, most writers depict religion from an omniscient, impersonal perspective in their work, viewing it as a cultural particularism rather than an objective reality, rather like a sort of fictional anthropologist probing fantasy religions for understanding about their doctrines and rituals rather than seeking enlightenment. The interiority of religious belief or faith as a personal experience is rarely given much thought. And instead, belief is often either two-dimensional, telling rather than showing, as by frequent allusions and invocations to the relevant fantasy gods, or else it is insincere, with religion used as a front for other motivations, usually political or power-orientated. And I would argue, in fact, that the fundamentally secular outlook of many fantasy characters, in particular main characters in fantasy literature, is one of the features that, that jars most strongly against their medievalist setting, which harks back to a world shot through with faith and religion, a world in which that kind of divide between the religious and the secular had very little meaning. Why someone believes in a certain faith is very rarely explored in fantasy writing. In A Song of Ice and Fire, for example, we're never given any real insight into why Melisandre believes so completely in Rollo. Even in the chapter written from her point of view in A Dance with Dragons, we must simply accept that she does, for unspecified reasons. So while her behaviour is shaped by her beliefs, it's superficial in the sense that her beliefs rest upon, for us, a shallow foundation and we cannot see how her faith is individually and personally inflected, and how that feeds into her actions. Similarly, in David Hare's Moontide Quartet, which for a series that is all about religious warfare, contains strikingly few characters who hold a genuine belief in the religions that Hare creates, all of which are closely based on real-world examples. There's no interior explanation for, or exploration of Ramita and Kasharan's O'Malley faith. It's simply a product of her upbringing in Lach, where she was born. And while her faith is occasionally challenged throughout the series by each of her husbands, for example, both of whom are religiously ambivalent or atheist, Ramita simply brushes these disagreements aside, 
They do not provoke her, or by extension the author, to reflect on her personal experience of her faith. So I was particularly struck by Islington's sudden sidestep into what you might call fantasy theology, where we get a sense of exactly why Ryleth believes in El the way that he does. And though it may initially seem to be a minor scene, I actually think Ryleth's words are key to understanding the Lycanus trilogy as a whole. The narrative arc of Talcamar, the most prominent member of the Venerate throughout the series, is a journey towards the most pivotal moment in his life, the moment which sowed a seed of doubt in him, causing him to question the directions of, as it turns out, the false El. And indeed that scene, which sets Talcamar on the road that he walks over the course of the books, constitutes the very final scene of the trilogy emphasising that the most important struggle in the books has not been the protagonist's fight against Shamaloth and those of the venerate still loyal to him, but has been the interior struggle of Talcamar himself, a struggle that is spiritual rather than actual. And in a series that has doubt as such a central theme, Ryleth's exposition of faith, in spite of personal suffering, in spite of doubts that he too has experienced, emerges as a kind of interpretative key to the whole trilogy. Elevating it, I think, from a, a highly traditional fantasy narrative of good versus evil into something that's a bit more nuanced about the symbiotic relationship between faith and doubt and the world-changing consequences of profound personal belief. And I'd like to turn briefly before finishing to another novel, which likewise locates power in the person of the believer and in their faith itself, rather than seeing it as invested solely in the deity being venerated. Tasha Suri's Realm of Ash contains a scene in which the heroine, Awa, confronts a nightmare, and this is a kind of demonic creature intent upon provoking massacre in a pilgrim camp. And while the nightmare infects the camp with a, a sort of preternatural fear, the residents of the home for widows in which the nightmare has been hiding are spared because they have unwittingly been offering the nightmare prayers and tokens of worship. Worship had power, Suri writes, page 358. And with this knowledge, Awa is able to save the camp. And a similar attack by another nightmare later in the novel is likewise fended off by an act of collective prayer on the part of the travelling pilgrims, until, as Suri describes it, quote, the fear remained, but it was quiet, so very quiet. Arba thought again of a tide against the shore, of the way a river of voices could wear a nightmare's bones smooth, given time. And that's from page 382. As in Islington's work, Suri highlights here the power of faith rather than just the power of the gods, which is actually something quite different. She highlights the power of faith to affect real-world change. And she's quite particular about faith rather than ritual being the wellspring, emphasising that the pilgrims all, quote, had different prayers. Their litanies and mantras and songs jumbled together in a great cacophony of noise, page 381 to 2. So once again, as with Islington's The Light of All That Falls, these small scenes prove pivotal to the novel's main narrative arc, which concerns finding a remedy for the curse which lies over the Amban Empire, 
Because it's in these acts of prayer and worship that Awa ultimately finds what she calls, quote, a slow way through the dark, page 404, um, which offers a remedy for the empire's ills that does not entail further exploitation of its people, but relies instead upon their faith. Both Islington and Suri find and explore the larger power inherent in seemingly small personal acts of faith and its obverse doubt, demonstrating that it is possible to treat faith seriously in fantasy while maintaining a fully imaginary world, i.e. without needing to make their work an allegory of any real-world religious belief. And thereby they bring, in my opinion, an extra and much-needed dimension to the fictional worlds that they create. Thank you so much for listening.